Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I am the director of the Global Summitry Project. Um, all of our activity uh, of the project can be found at globalsummitryproject.com, and there you will three, find our three podcast series, our e-journal, Global Summitry, and uh, stories from our um, student journalists at Centennial College uh, in the, the StoryWorks project. And then our two major research projects, which include China and the West Dialogue and Agenda 2030. It's my pleasure today to introduce, uh, once again, my colleague Colin Bradford uh, to talk about the rising geopolitical tensions in the global order and the very evident threats uh, to the continuation of global governance activities, especially um, institutions like the G20. There continue to be significant tensions between China and the United States. Uh, that, that relationship has only been made more difficult by the now significant conflict between Russia and the Ukraine. And the questions that um, arise, not least of which is, can the Bali G20 summit proceed Given the determination, it seems, uh, that President uh, Putin will attend and U.S. officials insisting that it cannot be uh, business as usual at uh, the G20 summit. So, real pressures on Indonesia, the G20 host, with respect to uh, the attendance and uh, the agenda. So let me give you a quick uh, background on Colin. He is uh, uh, and was, oops. Colin Bradford was one of the first uh, individuals and researchers to push for transforming the G8 uh, into the G20 at a leader's level. And he became a, a leading uh, convener of conferences, workshops and seminars in order to bring about a greater emerging market um, economic uh, involvement, emerging market uh, country activities in the global governance system. Uh, Colin today continues to be the lead co-chair of what's called the China and the West Dialogue or CWD. And also he is a co-chair in the Vision 20, an unofficial engagement group of the G20 Colin has participated in all the recent Global um, Solutions Summits that uh, come out of Berlin, and he has been named a GSS Global Fellow. So, come join Colin and I as we examine the threat to the roles of the G7 and the G20. Well, so welcome, Colin, back to the virtual studio to talk with us about um, the consequences of Russia's war on the Ukraine and the impact in particular on global symmetry, especially the G20. It's good to have you with us. Thank you, Alan. Pleasure. To All right. Be so go ahead. Yeah. No, pleasure to do this. It's a big topic with lots of dimensions. So indeed it is. So let me let me start this way. Um, uh, as, as we pointed out in the introduction, you are the lead co-chair of the CWD project. So let's start there. What is the CWD and why did you initiate this project? 
Well, the China West Dialogue is a, a project that we began, as you well know, because you were part of the founding of it and are the, the other co-chair, is uh, in April of 2019, when we brought together 11 founding members, three from Europe, three from, China, from Canada, mm -hmm. two from China, two from the US, and one Chilean, as it turned out, who had been ambassador of Chile to China, India, and South Africa, as it turns out. Um, so a useful voice is so the fundamental notion was to have a dialogue with China rather than about China. So the participation of our colleagues from the Shanghai Institutes for International Studies, the president, Chen Dongxiao, and his uh, senior uh, researcher named Yi Yu, they were very crucial to the beginning of it in the sense that they were well webbed into the thinking and in China, were serious researchers, were extremely aware of the international community. And so we, we opened that up and then we held a conference um, in conjunction with uh, the, the, the uh, Global Development Center at um, Boston University in March of 2020, mm -hmm. and have gone on from there to have 20 more sessions of of the China West dialogue, which has included now over 50 experts and experienced officials from over a dozen countries, but principally from the, from the originating countries, namely the US, China, Europe, mm -hmm. Canada, and we've included some Japanese and a Korean colleague of ours from long ago on the G20 and others, um, including other Chileans. So it's been a very, um, the purpose of it basically is to create this dialogue that includes China so that we're working with China towards some common understandings of how the relationship between China and the West might evolve. The basic premise of it was or premises of it was that and is that diversity is an asset and complexity is an advantage. Mm -hmm. So we're concerned to, to, to from the beginning to move from the from the U.S., China bilateral relationship to a pluralized relationship that would involve the West. The West, as, a, as somebody put it, a non-geographic concept. We're not talking about um, just Europe, but, but we would include Korea, for example, and Australia and Japan and, mm -hmm. and certainly Canada and other countries in that Latin America. I mean, it's not, it's not actually about the West. It's about trying to assemble countries that matter in international thinking and doing um, in trying to forge a different dynamic between um, China and the West that would be fundamentally different than the, than the bilateral tensions that exist. Okay. So, you know, looking at the Biden administration's foreign policy, I want you to kind of explore for us a little bit the current U.S.-China relationship in the face of uh, uh, two things. Uh, you know, there has been uh, President Biden himself uh, repeatedly calling for stiff competition with China. Um, some of his now current advisors uh, refer to it as competition without catastrophe. And the other has been uh, Biden's uh, framing um, and encouragement of a democracy versus autocracy 
relate uh, re, uh, global relationship, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Indeed, uh, the administration organized a summit for democracy last December. It's going to, you know, recall it. In fact, review impacts uh, in, in in the next year. So, uh, you know, what? How has that? you know, impacted on the uh, on the bilateral relationship, the China-U.S. relationship? Yeah, good questions. I mean, I think that one has to acknowledge that um, that there's a huge domestic uh, political dimension, if not, in fact, being the central driver, in a way, of the China-U.S. bilateral relationship. The initial um, approach of the Biden administration was to combine competition, cooperation, and confrontation together. And they thought that was doable. The problem has been, I think, that almost all observers, certainly all everyone in the China-West dialogue, at least, has felt that the confrontational narratives have drowned out the possibilities for cooperation, for sure, except for climate change, which everybody always puts in, which I think is an absurd um, reference to, a, in fact, a vein of cooperation that's pretty well gone as far as it can go for the moment. And um, it's crucial to the world, but it's not, it's not got a lot of uh, plasticity in it at the moment, a lot of potential in it. So, so the, but the point, main point is that, that I think in a, in a way, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt on this unwittingly, they thought they could get away with a three-pronged approach, and they ended up with one prong dominating the other two, mm-hmm. confrontation dominating competition and, and, and cooperation. Competition has got to be understood to be in, in the nature of the, of the beast of great power relations, which is what we have now. Let's acknowledge that China is a great power with the United States and with the European Union. And... So competition is not a bad thing. Competition should be managed, as Kevin Rudd calls it. Managed competition has been his mantra for the two years that we've uh, been in touch with him around the the China-West dialogue. This is the president of the Asia Society and the former 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 prime Prime minister Minister. of Australia, right? Correct. Correct. Very Mm -hmm. big figure and fluent in Chinese, uh, Mm -hmm. a Chinese scholar. Mm-hmm. An Australian embassy official when he was young in China knows the scene extremely well, is very, very level headed, articulate and a, and, a, and a thought leader on this. If there was one. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Kevin, I think in, in putting forward strongly this view of managed competition is is, in fact, framing it similarly to the way we would frame it, which is that we need to accept that competition is part of the game but manage it towards in ways that benefit both sides and benefit the global community as a whole. And that seems a a very distant place from where the the Biden administration seems to be. And your second question about the summit for democracies and the Mm -hmm. binary between democracy versus autocracy is is an exhibit A of, of really how to sort of ring, rally the troops and ring the ring fence China in a in a very uh, direct way that's hard for the Chinese to interpret in any other way. And they reacted very strongly by writing a long paper themselves about uh, how they're in their thinking China is a democracy. It just has different forms of governance and 
So if anything, the confrontational narratives got worse as a result of having the summit for democracy rather than managing them somehow. So our whole purpose is to precisely do the opposite of, of trying to drive from what the, the performance and the practice of U.S.-China relationships has revealed over the, over the last year and a half, is, which is divergence. We are trying to flip it and find points of convergence. And we think that the relationship is complex enough and, um, and that it would benefit from the diversity of having Europe as an independent voice, which it is as a, as a whole, but then there are independent voices within Europe as well, that diversity is actually a good thing. And in fact, there's a lot of business literature that claims that if you're trying to, to manage an endeavor or an enterprise, that, that if you get groupthink and organize yourself as the G7 is organized with like-minded countries only, mm-hmm. that you end up with what Jonathan Haidt, the NYU social psychologist, has, has called um, s- structural death, essentially, that you're... you're you're, it, he's called it, you end up with structural stupidity, actually, is the phrase that he has used, if you don't embrace diversity. And so our efforts, as is the G20 itself, um, embraces the diversity of, uh, that's out there in terms of cultures, in terms of, of regimes, in terms of uh, mixed economy, degrees of mixed economies, degrees in which state and markets mix as between, say, the UK and the US is the most market-driven economies in theory and, and um, state-driven economies like China and Russia. So th- that's, an, again, a binary that doesn't get you where you need to go, which is to realize that the middle of these binaries is very complex and that my, managed competition can go on within the, that kind of a more complex context rather than the ideological battle, which is fed by the binaries. Okay. Now, so let's turn then to the Russian equation and Russia's aggression in Ukraine. Um, How has that impacted um, the, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, U.S.-China relationship specifically and more broadly kind of international, international relations and global governance? Right. Right. Yeah. No, I think I think actually the 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 war in ukraine has been has jolted precisely the the geopolitical confrontational narratives that have dominated the whole global geopolitical um context namely the confrontational narratives between the us and china have really dominated if you were having a a focus on geopolitics before february 24th you would have had to deal with the dominance of that bilateral conflict um, mm-hmm. of, above everything else. So what happened then was, of course, that the shift went from China, from Asia to Europe and from China to Russia. And it's taken the heat off, I think, both the U.S. and China and taken the focus away from their relationship, which is pretty toxic and not wasn't going anywhere mm-hmm. um, except further apart, it seems to us. And <laughs> and. Um, and and took took the eye off the ball, so it opened up an opportunity which to um, think about ways in which China could be involved in in um, 
in getting us through this war towards a ceasefire, towards a peace negotiation agreement, and the degree to which the G7 would be willing and able to work with China towards um, a different um, a different a different ending to this war than it seems it's going to have the way it's going. So let's turn because you've you've been writing recently about uh, the informals and in particular the <clears throat> leader led summits, namely the G7 and and the G20. So let's turn uh, to to them. And recently you wrote the G7 has to make the G20 work because it's the G7 that potentially threatens the viability of the G20. You go on to say that uh, the issue is not Russia. The issue is the U.S. confrontational narrative. So it takes you back to the U.S. confrontational narrative with China. So what is the problem posed by the G7 members um, that you're you're raising here um, in, in that view that you wrote about? Well, I, th I think the problem is the like-mindedness of the group, which is why back uh, as long ago as almost 20 years ago, a number of us were pushing for the G20 to go to summit level yes, because it represented the world in a more realistic way than did to the G7 and G8 at the time. Mm -hmm. And that's true today. And the, the good thing about the G7, I was in favor at that point 20 years ago of, of having the G20 summits replace the G8. Because I thought the the and and the G7 in fact has been accused and accused in recent days again of of sort of caught being a caucus among the industrial democracies to organize the positions it wants to take and wants others to take and say the G20 and you know so the, so I thought the thing to do was to replace well we didn't replace I wasn't happy about it at the time but and it and for the few years as the G20 got off the ground as a summit platform, I was not happy with it. The Canadian prime minister at the time made the mistake of having the G7 just day before the G20, and he got racked for it by from other G20 member countries, and rightly so. But the truth of it is that now, in this situation with the war on Ukraine, the G7 has turned out to be a useful way to precisely um, uh, have democracies rally to fight the ac actions and behaviors, not the form of autocracy, but the actions and behaviors of Russia. And that's a very different frame. It's, it's the same words, but the framing is actually quite different because the, 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 the autocracy, democracy versus autocracy debate with China has been an ideological one. The, the, the framing now of democracies versus the actions of Russia mm -hmm. is a moral one because it, uh, it's quite evident to anyone who's watching this even out of the corner of your eye to see the horrors, the degree to which Russia has violated the UN Charter, the Geneva Protocols, the, the Code of Conduct of Combatants, the, the agreements about how you manage nuclear power plants um, in the case of the Russian army going into Chernobyl and setting up camp um, and risking the, the, the storage rods, um, cooling rods, 
in the place. I mean, this is just conduct that is of a very different sort. So that both the G20 and the democracy versus autocracy framing has a completely and utterly different set of dimensions and meanings in the in the Russian Ukrainian situation that it did with the dialogue with China. All of which means that there's open space now. It seems to me, despite the fact that Russia and China have agreed to have an unlimited set of cooperation agreements, that is open up space for China. Not to necessarily. I I think our thinking isn't so much that we're trying to separate China from Russia, but that it opens up a space for the West to accept China's help and participation as a great one of the three great powers in moving this forward. It doesn't have to play an explicit role, but just its 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 openness to to being supportive of transiting from war to ceasefire and from ceasefire to peace and, and reconstruction presumably. reconstruction afterwards this becomes extremely important and we've as you know well the the china group in in the china west dialogue has broadened and we have you know we've been having very constructive and vigorous conversations vigorous not in the sense of disagreement but energetic in terms of trying to 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 promote this idea that uh, which we tried to put forward for the for the um, G7 and the NATO and the Economic Council meetings in in Europe on March 24th, and then the EU China summit in on April 1st. We put forward yeah. the notion that, that Europe, the U.S., and China could should talk together about how to try to leverage an end to this. Um, so I, you know, I'm very encouraged, frankly, about. Um, how how the the war is absolutely horrid and it it's just um painful to watch as a human being but the fact is that in terms of our project it has presented an opportunity which i think china some in china at least that we're talking to yep. see it as an opportunity as well and i think uh, you know lots of people should think about it themselves and try to see ways in which we can use this to work with china towards keeping the international community as a single international community, rather than letting it okay. bifurcate into a China block and a, and a U.S. Western block. So let me just allow you to kind of sum up uh, your yes. thinking on this, because you you wrote recently in the special issue of the e-journal Global Summitry, uh, where you see the G20 involved in advancing collective efforts to meet the growing and, dra and dramatic global governance challenges that we can all attest to. The quality of the G20 is not perfect, but it's an approximation for, an, uh, for now of the embodiment of difference, which is important and needed for this moment of crisis. So, uh, you know, how are you, how are you picturing the G20 then um, uh, from uh, your writing in, in the special issue? Yeah, well, it goes back to this point that has been the basis for the China West dialogue all along, which is that diversity is an asset. I mean, okay, that's a contestable notion, but there is a lot of management literature that suggests that companies that don't embrace diversity are missing out on innovation and risk, and have substantial risks of the of the jeopardy of groupthink um, sinking the ship. Mm -hmm. And we've had that happen in national security issues too. I, as I understand it, in in the U.S. and elsewhere, where 
there is a kind of surround sound and you're, you're, you, you know, you know what the words are that you can use to articulate the policy and you know what the words are that you that go against the grain. And so you don't use those if you're in the inner circle. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be what's going on in Russia at the moment. But I hate to say it, but I think there's some danger of groupthink in Washington at the moment because the the elements of competition with China are so obvious and so real. And none of us are denying that that's there. But the fact is that diversity matters. Well, diversity also can be excessive. And so the real question is, if everyone of the G20 members is out for themselves alone, and there is a a distinct difference between every member of the G20, not only in its culture and identity and its maybe its regime, but also in its policies and politics, then you have chaos. So you do need convergence. And so where is the convergence? Well, already in the G20, you now have the G7, but you also have Australia, South Korea, and the EU have seats in the G20 also. So there are 10 members representing the West, of course, but as we've argued and what the CWD stands for as a China-West dialogue instead of a U.S.-China dichotomy, Mm -hmm. is that there's diversity within the West precisely. And that's a good thing because it means that there's ideas are contested, challenged, and, 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 and conclusions are forged, which embody complexity and embody nuance instead of simplicity. I think we're oversimplifying the U.S.-China relationship. The way the U.S. sees China is, is a, as a monolith and as monotonic, when in fact it's a hugely complicated place and much more willing to entertain multiple um, truths, if you like, and visions and perspectives than we are in our foreign policy. So I think the, and then there, you know, so there China becomes quite important if you have 10 Western countries, if there's some relationship and constructive working relationship with China, you, and, and, you know, and Indonesia is in this spot where if I were Indonesia, I would encourage this China West relationship precisely because with, and Turkey's been playing a role in brokering the peace with Russia. So there are now 13 of the 20 countries mm-hmm. are, could be the core, and that's a big core, of a working consensus in Bali in November towards recovery from the pandemic, recovery from the war, hopefully a peace by that time, mm-hmm. and by um, dealing with debt issues with developing countries, dealing with um global governance in, in general, climate change, and the plethora of global challenges that lie in front of us that, that uh, the G20 deals with, and where cooperation and among this large group of 13 countries, cooperation and negotiation and professionalism in working through issues could really make a difference in bringing the other countries along. And just as a, as a last thought, I mean, for those who might not know, I take it uh, Indonesia's role is particularly uh, valuable this this t- go round because it's hosting uh, yes. the G20 this year. Um, and I take it you've pointed not only to the importance of that, but also to the fact that, you know, the global south will have carriage and hosting of the G20 this year with Indonesia, but uh, next year with India and then potentially um, South Africa and or Brazil. Yeah. No, I think it's on the calendar is for Brazil and South Africa to follow in yep. 24 and 25. So 
No, no. I mean, that adds an entirely different dimension or an additional dimension to to the need for the G7 to take the G20 seriously and behave differently in it than it behaves with itself. And that is to reach out, to be inclusive, to be eclectic, to be, be embracing difference rather than pushing against it. And because you're doing two things by if you, if the G7 becomes kind of a, a, um, a, a click within the the G20 where they're huddling for lunch together and and making uh, trying to force issues along as a minority in the G20. Um, it's only a third in the end. Is is what it does is it alienates people. Alienate you. You create the frictions instead of manage the competition. To use Kevin Rudd's phrase, still again, is um, and so. I think the really key thing is not only to realize the importance of professional behavior and working, establishing working relations with China within the G20, um, but also realizing that the global South for the first time has a series of postings of this summit. And the next four years, every summit is going to be in the global South. They felt underheard in the in the world in general and in in the G20 in particular, and to somehow not realize that showing up with a sense of of earnest engagement and serious professionalism and ambition on the part of the West would be read in the in the non-Western world as as a uh, a slap and uh, and mm-hmm. and could be very detrimental to global governance in general because. We, the whole point here is to is to bridge divides, not not energize them, and and um, and I think there's just a real call on government officials involved in G20 and in all G20 capitals to sort of take a deep breath and come into the Indonesian process in between now and Bali in November and make this thing work precisely because the challenges are so great. And precisely because there is no other platform where a group of 20 large, systemically important countries can deal with issues which they are able to deal with because they're large and significant, not because of what their regime the regime form is like or what their agreements or disagreements about them are, but because the imperatives require that everything from climate change to the other 25 things you could think of um, need to need the 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 weight of these countries in the resolution of these challenges, without which the the problems will not be solved. I want to thank you, Colin, for your insights into uh, the U.S.-China uh, relationship, but more broadly in the uh, context of the informals, the G7, and now also your discussion about the G20. We'll have to come back to you as we close in on the Bali summit and see what what's happening. But thank you very much. Well, thank you, Alan. Always a pleasure to talk to you on these matters, needless to say. <laughs>